As I mentioned, we're going to be reading the entirety of 2 Samuel chapter 6. So if you would turn in your Bibles there, or if you don't have one, there's a blue Bible in front of you underneath a chair, page 258. We're making our way through 2 Samuel, and it's helpful to have this whole story in context. So I'm just going to have you remain seated, and I'll read the whole chapter. And just, you can read along, or if you just want to listen, like you're listening to a story, try to pick up some of the things that God's talking to us about here as we read. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David rose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of the Lord with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And there they came to the threshing floor of Nacon. Uzzah put his hand out to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, And God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom there three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of the Lord. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with, with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and, fat, and a fatted animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place and inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And he distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each. And then all the people departed each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house. To appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will make merry before him 
I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Let's take a moment to reflect on God's word. A couple of years ago, I did a sermon series from the book of Proverbs. And in the series, I talked about this book of wisdom. is a book that helps you live along the grain of God's universe. So you know that, that picture? If you've got a piece of raw wood, if you, if you rub your hand along the grain, then you're fine. But if you run your hand against the grain, you're going to get some splinters. You're going to get hurt. So God has set up and ordered his universe for everybody to live in, and he wants people to live in it well. And if you read the wisdom books, it helps you know how to live, how to live with your money, how to live with friendships, how to live with your parents, how to marry well. All these kinds of things come out of the book of Proverbs, and if you just follow along the grain of God's universe, then for the most part, you'll be fine. And I I wonder if you remember the the keystone piece of wisdom. The, the very first thing the, the writer, the father says to his son, here's like the, the keystone piece of wisdom. If you get this piece of wisdom, son, then all the other pieces of wisdom will fall in line. The fear of the Lord, remember, is what? It's the beginning of wisdom. You've got to have this in place, the fear of the Lord, this Healthy fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So I I have to begin. My my first step into living along the grain is I have knowledge of God's holiness, His his complete otherness than me. We're not the same. He's not a bigger version of Paul Phillips. He's not a a Paul Phillips 2.0. He's not a nicer guy than me. He's totally different than me. He's completely holy. And my understanding of that helps me enter in in a fearful, healthy, fearful way. And when I have that down, then as I live my life, I'm going to live along the grain. Because then whatever he says, I'm going to live that way. I'm going to trust he knows better than I am. And even if it kind of goes against how I would feel, I'm going to say, well, Lord, I don't want to go against the grain. I want to live along the grain. And chapter 6 is one of the most unusual chapters in the book of 2 Samuel. And what it describes is a moment where people lived against the grain. This keystone proverb dropped off the screen for them. And they were really living not uh, along the grain. They were living according to their own desires. And the chapter, the chapter breaks down into two parts. First, uh, 1 through 11, David and Uzzah. It's a very unusual part of the story. And they get a lesson about God's holiness. Very difficult lesson. And then 12 through the end of the chapter, David and Michael. She's the daughter of Saul. She's the wife of David. And we see celebration and a sober warning. So I want to just look at it in that way. David and Uzzah and then David and Michael. 
And as we walk through sort of these two halves of the story, let's make sure we understand it, make some observations, and then make some applications. Now, I can already hear this conversation happening after the service with two of my good friends. Paul, we love it when you make observations, but can we just skip the application? Why don't we just, you know, miss that part one week? And they say it lightly because they know all the application seems to be pointing right at them, and they're just tired of all the application, but maybe some of this application would point at your heart as it has mine this week. First of all, let's get a little background of the ark. You could learn all about the ark in Exodus chapter 25. It was built by Moses as they came out of Egypt on their way to Israel. And the ark is a four feet by two foot box, like, a, like you might think of a trunk. It's overlaid with gold, and inside this box is the Ten Commandments. This is the word of the Lord, the law or the commands of God. And the ark has a solid lid on it, solid gold lid. On each side, there are angels that are kneeling down or sitting down in some kind of posture, and their wings are towards the center, so they're at the edge. And this center area is called the mercy seat. This is the place where the priest would come into the the Holy of Holies, where the the ark was uh, placed, sprinkled some blood on it. So when God came down to judge according to his word, in between God and his judgment was the blood of a lamb. And that blood allowed God to judge in mercy, not just in justice. And so the ark for the Old Testament people, it's the place where you meet God. It's the place where you understand God's word. It's the place where you receive God's mercy. Let me say that again. The ark in the Old Testament, that's the place where you meet with God. That's the place where he tells you about his word. This is the way I want you to work or this is the way I want you to, to, to follow me. And this is the place where... You make a sacrifice, and you ask for mercy. Now, I don't have time to talk about this, but I do want to just point out how the ark connects to Jesus. Jesus is the new ark. This is not the main point, but I do want to highlight it. I want want to read first for you John chapter 20, uh, verses 11 and 12. And this is John's way. He's, he's, all connect, he's connecting all the Old Testament to Jesus, and this is how he connects the ark to Jesus. John chapter 20, verse 11. This is after Jesus has died. And Mary stood outside the tomb. This is on Sunday. And as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting by the body where the body had been, laying of Jesus, one at the head, and one at the foot. You see what she's seeing? She looks in, and there's two angels at the end of this cloth where Jesus had been. And it's John's way of saying, this is the new ark. This is where you come and meet with God, Jesus. This is, com- this is the word that's made flesh. This is where you learn about God's word. And this has been the sacrifice once and for all. This is the blood that's going to cover your sin one time for all. So it's a little picture. John just wants you to subtly see that now we're not worried and thinking about the ark anymore because Jesus is the ark. He is the one that is going to bring us all the way home. 
In the Old Testament, the ark was the most important symbol of relationship with God. In fact, it's even called by the name of God. If you look in chapter 6, verse 2, the ark of God, which is called by the name of God. You could call it Yahweh. So, so interconnected with the person of God. And because the holiness of God is, is something you never take lightly, there are specific instructions on how you would transport the ark. So they're moving the ark from place to place until it lands in Israel. And God gives specific instructions on how to handle the ark. Not Numbers chapter 4. Only Levites or the priests could handle the ark. When it was transported, it had to be covered. And when it was transported, there were rings on each corner, holding rings. And you would stick a big, long piece of wood. Think of like a pole vault through these rings, and then the guys would put those, those poles on their shoulders and they would walk the ark to the next place. That's how the ark was supposed to be transported. Now, the last time we saw the ark was way back in 1 Samuel chapter 6. And if you remember, the Israelites had gone to a battle against the Philistines and they lost the battle and the Philistines captured the ark. you remember this? And they take the ark back to their place and what does the ark do? It causes nothing but trouble, right? It's so much trouble, they say, we got to send this thing back. So they actually load it up on an ox cart. So an ox cart is something you stand beside and drive. You don't get on it like you think of it as a cowboy wagon. So you put a cart behind an ox and you have him there and you sort of walk beside the ox and drive him along. And in this case, the Philistines don't want to have anything to do with the ark, so they just hit the ox once, and the ox goes, and wherever it lands, that's where the ark lands. And the, the ark actually lands back into a small town in Israel. And we see that, that when they come there, that this small town, that they get the Levites to come out, but they mishandle the ark. And 70 men die. 70. And this is what they say. They cried out, Who is able to stand before the Holy Lord. And they decided, we don't want to have anything to do with the ark. And however Abinadab got named, they said, hey, you got to keep the ark. Now in chapter 6, it's 20, 30 years later. And the ark's been just sitting there. I mean, we don't know if it's been in sort of a back room or a shed outside, but somehow it's basically been forgotten. And David is now established as king. And the first thing he wants to do is bring the ark back into Jerusalem, back into the midst of the people. And it's David's way of saying, people of God, the real king is this king. He calls himself, I'm just a prince. I'm a servant of the king. We're, we're all here and we have different roles, but I'm bringing the ark back in so we all know we're not really following me. We're really following this king. He's the king. He's got the words for us to follow. And so it's a beautiful desire by David's, uh, David's desire. And so he, he decides to bring the, back the ark. And let's just look at this, verse 3. And they carry the ark of God on a new cart. Hmm. And the sons of God were driving the cart, which was led by an ox. And they lead out in a great procession, a great celebration, a great worship parade. So the ark, the ark is now not being carried on poles. It's on 
being carried like the Philistines would carry it. It's not intended by the Levites, it's intended by these two guys, these two sons that were uh, part of Abinadad's house. And so I just read through this and I thought, why didn't somebody say something? Why didn't somebody just stop and say, hey guys, you know why the ark got stopped at Abinadad's house? Because remember the whole story, 70 guys died? I mean, that's why we're even coming to get this thing is because somebody got, got in the way of God and God's holiness and we don't want to do that. And so let's make sure we get it right. But somehow nobody speaks up. So God allows the worship parade to continue to notice verse six, a threshing floor. So again, just these little clues in the Bible, the threshing floor. Threshing floor is always a place of judgment. Remember? It's where you separate the wheat from the chaff. And so God allows the people to walk along for some distance and nobody's going to speak up. So guess who's going to speak up? God's going to speak up. And he speaks up in a big way. And Uzzah dies. Somehow at that threshing floor, whether there was a rut in the road, we don't know, but the ox stumbles, the ark begins to slide off the cart, and Uzzah, it you, seems understandably, he decides, I've got I to push the ark back on. I don't want to fall in the dirt. So I lean into the ark. I get it stabilized until the ox can move forward. And when Uzzah mishandles the ark, history repeats itself. He immediately dies. The worship service immediately dies. Imagine being in a worship service and somebody dying. Kind of end of the celebration right there. And they shuffle the ark off to somebody else's house. Obed-Edom. It's really the same thing that's happened before. And people shuffle off to their own houses. And David shuffles off to his house. And in verse 8, and David was angry. So David didn't just shuffle off home. He's angry. Now this passage, so many rich applications. Let me just make a few. When you read this, is what first comes to your mind, this is why people don't like the biblical view of God. Does that somehow come to your mind? I mean, come on. It's just a guy, he's walking beside the ark. Maybe he doesn't know anything. And he's trying to rescue the ark from following the dirt. And so his his best efforts, he means well probably to push the ark back on. And, and, and he, he dies. If, if that might be your thought, I would understand that. But I would try to gently push back and say you don't completely understand the seriousness of God's holiness and the seriousness of your sin if, if that's what comes to mind that this seems so unfair or unjust or uh, this is why people wouldn't follow this kind of God then you don't really see yourself as you should and you really don't see God as you should, because the beginning of wisdom is the holiness of God, and I should have some healthy fear towards Him. That's how you live along the grain. But David and Ahio and Uzzah mistakenly 
take a casual approach to God's holiness. They take a casual approach to their own sinfulness. And you can tell they take a casual approach because Uzzah instinctively reaches out to save the ark from falling in the dirt, thinking, see, it never occurred to Uzzah that the ark touching him would be far more defiling than the ark touching the dirt. See, that never occurred to him. I can't let this ark touch the dirt because then it'll get dirty. It never occurred to him that if he touched it, it would be a lot dirtier by him touching it. It just never occurred to him because he had a casual view of his own sin and he had a casual view of the holiness of God. One of the greatest delusions of sin is believing that you're really not that bad. And maybe that's what you think. I mean, you don't say it out loud too many times, especially around your friends, because they remind you how bad you are. But in your mind, you think, well, I, you know, I'm not perfect, but I'm a lot cleaner than dirt. And if that message plays through your mind, if you look at the story and think God overreacted, then sin is clouding your thinking. Sin is operating right at that moment to say, yeah, that's right, Paul, you're not that bad. And that's, that's cloudy thinking. That's, that's a lying voice in your head. And maybe you, you read the story and you stomp away like David in anger. You leave the worship service saying, I just can't, I can't, I can't come back to Christ Community Church because of this chapter. I just can't believe in a God who would be this way. And, and you leave like David, angry. And what you're supposed to notice that would be hard to see really on the first reading is you're supposed to compare chapter 5, verse 20 with chapter 6, verse 8. So let's just do those together here. Chapter 6, verse 8, And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth, or some, some translation says it had broken out. I'm angry because God's holiness has broken out on me. And my team carrying the, uh, the ark. Compare that to verse 5, chapter 20, where David is, is fighting the Philistines, the real enemy of God. And David came to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, the Lord has burst forth, the Lord has broken out against my enemies like a bursting flood. So David is perfectly fine when God's holiness bursts forth against his enemies. But what David isn't fine with is when God's holiness bursts forth against him. See, I'm all for God taking people out. That's good. I've got a long list of people I'd like to have taken out. Some of you are going, I know I'm not coming back to this church now. Pastor's got a long list of people. But you feel that? I'm okay with God's justice rolling forth against all these people I could name, but what if it rolls forth against you? Oh, hold on. See, I'm not that bad. I'm all right. I'm okay. But see, David doesn't understand he's an enemy of God as well. He doesn't see himself in the right way. He doesn't have the right view of the holiness of God. He doesn't have the right fear of his own sin. Hebrews 10.31, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. 
for you Narnia fans, very first book when the, the kids find out Aslan is a lion from Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. You remember this? Aslan is a lion? A great lion? Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Remember what Mr. Beaver says? Safe. Who said anything about him being safe? Of course he's not safe. See how Lewis is trying to say it in a way you can understand? When, when you understand your sinfulness coming before a holy God, you're not safe. That's not a safe place to be unless somebody is coming with you. And David and his friends think God's safe without them thinking about their own sinfulness. R.C. Sproul has a great quote, The holiness of God is always traumatic to unholy people. So just a question here, just self-evaluation. Where, where are you on the holiness of God and the sinfulness in your soul? Does there need to be some adjustment in your mind on that? One, one more comment here because I can't pass this one up. Their big worship service, you notice how they describe it? You know, tambourines and harps and castanets and everybody dancing. This really loud procession of worship. It, it, it gives them a false sense of security. It masks their disobedience. See, somehow in their mind they thought, well, we're dancing before the Lord. We are celebrating. We're shouting. We're singing the songs. I mean, I even got my hands up in a Presbyterian-like church. I mean, I must really be holy. I checked the holiness box. I got it down. But you see, then, the, then when they walk away, they keep living their same old life. And somehow the, the fantastic worship service actually masks the reality to themselves. And I wonder if that's possible for anybody in here. You check the, the box, the Sunday morning singing box. But then when you leave, it's right back to your old ways. Your old desires really run the show. That's the first half. So David stomps away angry. The ark ends up in this random place, Obed-Edom. But Obed-Edom gets blessed by the ark because God's presence really is meant to be a blessing. And I love how somehow it gets back to King David, verse 12. Somebody comes back and said, I don't know what happened with you guys, but Obed-Edom, he's getting blessed. And so David says, okay, I'm going to try again three months later. And somehow David's anger has subsided. And I might say he's gotten a better understanding of anger he, he shifted away from angry at God to angry at himself and so he comes again and he meets the ark in an appropriate manner you can read about that in verse 14 and 15 and notice he's dancing before the Lord that little phrase occurs several times everything David now David is doing now is before the Lord it's for the Lord and he's wearing this linen ephod. It's like an undergarment. 
It's not really your underwear. That's not the idea. It's just an undergarment that you would put over, you would put underneath a, a, a greater robe of some kind. And if you didn't have a greater robe, then probably you just couldn't afford anything better. So you kind of look like a servant. But David's a king. He's, he's got all of his robes on as a king. And he's decided now when they're bringing the real king in, he's stripping off all of his kingly garments. He looks like a servant, even his wife says. You, look like, you just look like a, a little servant. So David takes off all of his kingly garments. He looks like a servant, so everyone would worship God. Can you make that connection? There's another king that comes forward who takes off his kingly robe. And what form does he take? The form of a servant. Why? So everyone would look at God. You see, there's all kinds of little shadows of Jesus in David's life. And here's another one. And so he wants to make sure everybody's worshiping God. No, no worshiping of David. Nobody, nobody, nobody lifting up David. David looks like a servant. He looks like everybody else because at the foot of the cross, everybody is equal. Nobody looks like a king. And he's dancing before the Lord and embedded in this celebration as a sober warning. I mentioned last week, whenever the, a, the kingdom of God is getting established, whenever the kingdom of God is being celebrated, you can bet a rival kingdom is being set up. And here the rival kingdom is represented by Michael. Now notice how Michael's described three times. Verse 16, 20, 23. She's Michael, comma, what? The daughter of Saul. Uh-oh. The daughter of Saul. Saul was for Who? Saul was for Saul. So it's the writer saying, Michael is for Michael. Michael's not dancing, she's despising. And what's her primary concern? Verse 20. Look with me. And David returned to bless his house. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king has honored himself today, very sarcastically, uncovering himself before the eyes of his servants. You, you, look, you look vulgar. You look shameless. What's, what's most important for Michael? What's most important for every rival king is image. The most important thing is how I look. How I look before mankind, not how I look before the Lord. That's, that's my main driving force in the rival kingdom. David, while he's stripping out all of his outward appearances, Michael is trying to put on all outward appearances. The very opposite thing is happening between these two people. What she values most is what other people think about her. For Michael, image is all that matters. Can, can you imagine being Michael? Can you imagine being in a culture where image is all that matters? Probably. Can, can you imagine living in ways to purposefully draw attention to yourself? Can you imagine living thinking, really what matters most is what this person thinks about me, not what God thinks about me? Yeah, you can imagine that. I can imagine that because today we live inside 
the rival kingdom. That's the kingdom that we're involved in in this culture. It's a kingdom of self. And my question for myself and for you this morning, especially as we're in this Lent season, trying to focus on Jesus, is are you doing anything tangible to fight against that rival kingdom? See, when you, when you leave, you, I, this isn't a newsflash, you know it, it, immediately the messages come. They come over the radio, they come over your phone, they come over the grocery store line. The messages constantly come. Get in this stream. It matters so much that you lose 20 pounds before bikini season comes. That's everything, everywhere, all the time. And it's beckoning you in. Come and live in this stream. And my question, are you doing anything tangible to say, I can't live in that stream? If you can't think of something, I would suggest, let's think of something. And even if you're just going to practice for this Lent season, this 40 days, maybe just for this time, I don't want to try to present any of these things in some kind of legalistic way, but maybe you should just stop posting stuff about yourself. Just take a break from yourself. Can you do that? And just say, okay, I'm taking a break from myself. I don't need to tell everybody what meal I had. I don't need to show everybody the thing about my kid. I don't need to say, hey, look at this great vacation spot. I just need to take a break from myself. And it's not that you, you can't ever do it, but you just are saying, I got to somehow tangibly step out of that stream. Because if I don't do something, I'm going to get caught in the stream of self. I realize that as a 56-year-old man, I look like a fossil to many people, especially my kids when I say things that are tied to their generation. But most of you know this thing called TikTok, do you not? Just another social media platform to promote yourself. And I love the little phrase it says about itself. What, what is TikTok? It's a place for spontaneous and genuine videos about your life. <laughs> I mean, nothing could be less genuine than what's on your phone. Nothing is less genuine than that. That's in the middle of the rushing stream. What's on your phone about you or your friends? And I wonder if you're doing anything. I think about somebody who's in high school especially somebody who's in college, are you doing something tangible to say, I've got to get out of that stream? Because if you don't, you just get sucked in and sucked away. Maybe you don't brag. Maybe you don't name drop. I don't know if, if women do this, but men do this all the time. You got three or four guys around and somebody tells a story. And what's on the mind of every other guy in that little circle? A story that's going to top his story. They're not listening to you anymore. I mean, I don't care how long your story going. I got a story on my mind and as soon as you give me some air, I'm going to tell you my story. That's every guy, every situation. And what if you just decided, I'm not going to, I'm not going to have the last word. 
What if that was just a way of saying, I'm going to get out of the stream. I'm going to, that's my little Paul Phillips way because I'm 56. I've had lots of experience, got a lot of young life stories. And when somebody starts talking about it, I just feel the need to jump in and say, well, let me give you one little story. It's like, let me show you one little badge that Paul Phillips earned somewhere. Maybe it's what you wear. For David, it was what he wore. He wanted to make sure that what he wore wasn't drawing attention to himself. And maybe that's it for you. I don't know. You can think of your own. But there's got to be some tangible way you step out of the stream. Now let me just close with here, and that's the sober warning. It's with Michael. You might say her life is between two windows. Between two windows. In chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 18 and 19, David's life is threatened. And he's married to Michael. And Michael gets word that Saul, her dad, is sending the army to kill David in his own house. And what really burns Saul up is that his daughter loved David the true king. So Michael gets wind of it and she lowers him through a window and he escapes. And so in somewhere 25 years ago from this moment, Michael loved the king, the true king. She was walking away from the house of Saul saying, I don't want to have anything to do with that house. This is the true king. And I love him so much, through this window, I'll do anything to save his life. That's the first window. And now here we are, 20, 30 years later, and she's at another window. And she looks out the window and sees David, and what does she do? She despises the true king. Something happened in between those two windows. Now, the text doesn't tell us, but we know something happened. Maybe she got tired. I don't know. Maybe she had a hard life. She probably did have some hard things happen to her in her life. I know she did. Maybe King David wasn't treating her like she thought she was going to be treated. Maybe she thought, I'm a position of power and I need to use that power. But whatever happened, she transferred windows and she walked from the one window where she really trusted and loved the king of kings to now I trust and love myself and I wonder if there's anybody here who's making that movement two years ago or 22 years ago somehow you were looking out the right window and you said, I'm all, I'm all in for the Lord. I love the King of Kings. I know who the true King is. But somehow life got difficult. Pain entered in. The desire for power or pleasure. And you just walked away from the window of the true King. And now in your window, it's not a window. It's a mirror. See, don't you wish I hadn't done the application, just observation? This is what's so helpful about the Word of God.
So you can come in like a scalpel and point at, hey, this is the place. And my prayer is that somewhere in this chapter, God is trying to take his holiness like a, a surgical knife and say, hey, you're not concerned enough about your sinfulness and my holiness. You're getting sucked up in the stream. You're starting to look out a different window. Don't do that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for your word and how rich the soil of your word is. That, that we can come here for an hour and we can be like um, a patient on the operating table and say, Lord, w- would you just operate on my soul and take out the things that are cancerous that are going to cause me to, to drift away, to live a fruitless life. You, you do the convicting, I pray, Holy Spirit. And then put us back together as people who want to follow after you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our closing song.